Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 29. So I don't know how many of you were here last Sunday, but uh, last Sunday we studied about how Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau. You recall that he had bargained with Esau um, for the birthright of the firstborn. You know, uh, Esau came in famished and he could care less about the spiritual aspect of the birthright. um, But until it was time to receive the blessing of the birthright, which Isaac thought he was dying. He ends up living for another about for another 40 years, but he thought he was dying. So he called Esau and said, hey, uh, go get some food, go, go hunt some game, cook it up the way I like it, bring it here. I'm going to eat it and then I'm going to give you that blessing. And, and Rebecca overheard that and uh, she didn't want Esau to have the blessing. She wanted Jacob to have the blessing. So she convinced Isaac, and, or excuse me, convinced Jacob, and it didn't take Jacob too much uh, to follow through with it, to deceive Isaac, his father, into thinking that he was blessing Esau. That was all last week. And uh, both Isaac and Esau realized that Jacob had just stolen the blessing from Esau, although Esau had really just given it away earlier, years earlier. And so as a result of that, Esau's got this hatred, and he swears that he's going to kill Jacob after Isaac dies, and Rebekah hears it. And so Rebekah, she doesn't just say, hey, Isaac, Esau's going to kill Jacob. She manipulates Isaac into saying, hey, you know, I'm going to... I don't want him to marry anyone from around here. You know, send him away. And so uh, Rebecca um, and Isaac, they send Jacob away to Haran, where Rebecca's from, to find a wife from among Rebecca's relatives. And, uh, and so last week we studied that. Jacob set out alone for Haran in Mesopotamia. And he went with no one. He's by himself. And he went empty-handed. He went with nothing. He maybe had some food provisions, but that's it. He went just basically him. And uh, this first long day's journey, Jacob is so exhausted that he finds a pillow and it makes a, you know, it's like, or he finds a rock and goes, man, that make a great pillow. He falls down. He's asleep. And during his sleep, he has this vision of this staircase between earth and heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. And the Lord's above the staircase. And the Lord appears to Jacob in that dream and and basically he's telling Jacob, Jacob, I'm your grandfather Abraham's God. I'm your father Isaac's God. And now I'm your God. I'm here for you. Jacob and and the, the vision of the angels going up and down. Jacob, I'm actively involved in your life. Even though you don't even realize it, I've been there. I've been involved in your life. You no longer need to con or connive or to strive to earn my blessing because I'm gonna bless you, not because of you, but because of my promise to Abraham, your grandfather, and Isaac, your father. because of of God's grace and God's mercy. Well, in the morning, uh, Jacob wakes up and he builds this altar to Jehovah. And then the old Jacob kind of starts emerging. He tries to negotiate a contract with God. Well, Lord God, if you bless me like you say, then I'm going to do this. I'm going to build a house here and I'm going to tithe to you. And, you know, there's all these things that I'm going to do. And God was just, God said, I'm just going to bless you. I just want to bless you. I love you. And Jacob's trying to work out this, this, this contract with God. Well, you see, God's not finished with Jacob. Jacob's a work in progress at this point. He's been introduced to the Lord God himself, and now God's going to do work in his heart. Uh, to, 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 he's really going to undergo the refiner's fire, as we see in the next few chapters. Um, and so that's where we're at here in chapter 29. So verse 1, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, 
So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Now why did they put a stone on a well? Well, in that environment, water was scarce. Wells were highly prized. Um, if you had an enemy, they would come and they would, they would fill the well. They would dump dirt in it and, and, and block it up and stuff. So for whatever reason, they have this large stone that they roll over the mouth of the, of the well, and it's probably to protect the well, to protect the water. And so <clears throat> either this stone is too large for one person to move by themselves, or these shepherds, maybe they're just a little bit lazy, and they're like, you know, instead of moving it every time a flock comes, why don't we just wait till all the flocks get here? We'll do it once, you know. Let's let's work smarter, not harder, you know. And and so we'll just move it once. And for whatever reason, they're waiting around. Not all the flocks are there, um, and so these shepherds are there. And so Jacob sees this well. He sees sheep. And he sees these shepherds that are tending the sheep. And so he walks over to them. And verse 4, it says, And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Now, picture this. Jacob probably doesn't really know where he's at. I mean, he's probably given directions on how to get to Mesopotamia, how to get to Haran. You know, when you find this big rock, turn to the right, go, you know, a day's journey this way till you find a tree. Over there, you'll find a, you know, whatever it is. But he's never been there before, right? He grew up in Canaan. He has no map, like Google map on his smartphone. In fact, he doesn't have a smartphone. Um, He's not a member of AAA, so he doesn't have a trip tick. Anybody remember trip ticks? All right, there's a few people, man, when we went, when I was a kid, and my parents, they belonged to AAA, and we went up to Canada a lot, and uh, my parents, I remember, I, I always remember that, they would go to AAA before they went on a trip, and they'd get what was called a trip tick, and it was basically, it was like a, a, a notebook, basically, with a map, and it had pages, and they would take a felt pen, and they would mark your map on what route to take, on what highways. And so you would, you would uh, tell them what your destinations were. They would mark it out. And then as you're traveling, you would go, you know, every 100 miles or so, you flip the page, okay, this city's coming. And that's how you went. That was a triptych. All right, little, uh, little trivia there anyways. So there's no, there's no triptychs. He doesn't know where he's going. There's no sign, say, sign on the road saying, uh, you're, just, you're leaving Canaan. Or there's no sign saying, welcome to Mesopotamia, the land of opportunity. You know, there's nothing like that. He's never been outside of Canaan. So imagine his surprise when he sees this well. He talks to these shepherds and says, hey, uh, where are you guys from? They're from Haran. Wow, that's his destination. How exciting is that? So imagine his surprise when he finds out that these shepherds are from Haran. Now he's excited, right? So out of his excitement, he says, hey, do you know, excuse me, hey, do you know Nahor the son Oh, excuse me, Laban, the son of Nahor. Um, you know, just a word of caution. If you don't know somebody really well, it's not always good to identify them in a new... You know, I, unknown to Jacob at this point. You know, Jacob's a pro at conning people. He's, he's pretty good at it. But his uncle Laban wrote the book, The Art of the Con. I mean, that's just who he is, you know. He's a con artist. Now, if you know con artists, maybe you have a relative or maybe you know a con artist. Maybe hopefully you're not one, but you know, they don't selectively con just certain people. They con whoever they can get 
an advantage over. It doesn't matter. It could, they could con their grandmother. It doesn't matter because that's, that's their nature. Well, Laban almost certainly has a reputation as a con artist. And so if you can imagine, Jacob comes up to the guys, hey, you guys are from Haran? They're like, yep. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And the shepherds, if you read it in the, in the Hebrew, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, we know him. Uh, you know, and they're probably thinking everybody knows Laban, except we don't call him the son of Nahor. We call him something else. But yeah, we know who he is. Um, and uh, note the italics in verse 6. Jacob says, is he well? And they go, well, because he is, is, uh, is italicized. So if you imagine, like, do you know Laban? Yeah, we know him. Is he well? Well. And then they go, look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Now, they probably can't stand Laban. This is my guess. They probably can't stand uh, Laban. But Rachel, his daughter, she's young. We find out here very soon that she's very beautiful. So they probably don't mind hanging out with her. They just can't stand her dad. So, so here's Rachel, the youngest. She's a shepherdess. Now, being a shepherdess or a shepherd, it wasn't a glamorous job. It wasn't like this prized job that people want. Everyone in the role in that culture, had everyone in the family had a role. And so they would give the youngest or the least significant in the family, they, they can at least tend sheep. So that would be their job. Remember King David? Before he was a king, he was just a young guy. He was the runt of the litter, basically. His job was to tend the sheep. And then, and then when Samuel the prophet came and, and wanted to anoint a new king and, and the Lord told him to go to the house of Jesse, you know, Jesse parades all his sons. He doesn't even think about David because David's just the runt. You know, who cares about him? And, of course, that was the one that, that the Lord had picked. And so Rachel, she's the young, young person in the family. She's got this... This not very significant job. Maybe she smells like the sheep. I mean, who knows? But she's good looking. And uh, verse 7. So <clears throat> they said, look, there's Rachel. You know, Rachel's on her way there. And so verse 7, it says, then he said, this is Jacob speaking. Look, it's high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. Now, <clears throat> a couple things that jump out here. First of all, you got to know that Jacob is in his 70s. Okay, he's not a young buck. He's in his 70s at this time. He's not a young whippersnapper. These shepherds, probably like Rachel, are the young ones in their family. You know, And so they're probably a lot younger. They're more than likely more handsome. Um, <clears throat> and so he doesn't want any competition. And so he's like, hey, guys, don't you have some work to do? Like, scram. You know, she's got to get, get out of here, you know, because he doesn't want to have any competition there. In verse 8, it says, but they said... We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the, mills, from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So here, if you can picture these shepherds, here's a stranger that shows up and he's trying to tell them what to do. I mean, he doesn't know the rules. He doesn't know the procedure. And, uh, and here he is trying to change everything. You know, here's a word to the wise. If you're in a new job or in a new environment, don't jump in like you have all the answers and you're going to fix everyone's problems, you know, just kind of, you might have the answers and you might have a better way of doing things, but it's better to just lay low and ease into that job. I learned that myself. Um, I was, I got hired by IBM in, in San Jose and I was working there for six years in maintenance and I didn't think that I was anything special, but uh, I, I worked on all kinds of different equipment and uh, there was equipment that, you know, we get some problem beginning of the shift. The last shift say, yeah, this is broken and stuff. We would take it over. And uh, I just had this reputation. I would just dig into it and take some... I, I, would, I would stick with the problem until I fixed it. And, and actually, I started fixing things amazingly. 
And uh, as a result of that, I gained this reputation. And again, I'm not, this isn't bragging, but I got this award of being one of the top six outstanding technicians. And it was just like they gave me this award right before I left um, San Jose. And so then I came to Rochester and I was in a new maintenance group starting on third shift. And uh, they had a machine called a sputterer. And I'm not going to go into details of what that is, but um, basically the sputterer went down. And uh, it, the guys that I was working with were like, okay, time to call the engineer. Okay, this is like 1, 2 in the morning. Time to call the engineer. And uh, we hadn't even looked. We hadn't even taken any measurements. We hadn't done any troubleshooting. It's just like, it's down. Call the engineer. And I'm like, hey, guys, why don't we dig into this and start, you know, because that's what I always say. Let's, let's dig in and do some measurements. And they go, we don't do that with this equipment. When it breaks, we call the engineering manager, and then they call the engineer. And I'm thinking, wow, you got to wake up three people or two people just to fix a problem that we could probably. So anyways, at that point, and the guy that I was talking to, I could tell. I mean, I was just new on the job there. I could tell. He's like, who are you, and what are you doing trying to tell us how to do things? And I'm like, ooh, okay. So I, so I, I backed down. I'm like, okay. And uh, so they ended up calling the engineer. The engineer came in. He did the exact measurements that I had suggested, and he found a problem. And I thought, you know what? We could have found the problem ourselves. But, again, I realized I just needed to back down and, and bite my lip. And, and uh, anyways, all that to say, I can imagine that this is what's taking place um, with uh, Jacob. You know, he's telling them what to do, and they're like, who is this guy? Verse 9, now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. It says here that Jacob rolled the stone. Now, does that mean that, that he helped the shepherds roll the stone? I mean, they didn't leave. Remember, he wanted to get rid of them. They didn't leave. Um, or, man, he just wanted to impress young Rachel. So he's like, ah, stand back, guys. And he did it himself. You know, maybe he had a hernia afterwards. But, you know, he's like, I'm going to move this thing. So he, anyways, he helps them roll the stone. And, and Rachel doesn't know who this guy is, right? So here's this guy rolling, the, moving this stone away walks up and kisses her. Now, in that culture, it wasn't like a kiss on the lips. It was a kiss on the cheeks. It was just, you know, a common thing in that culture. Kisses her on the cheeks, and then this guy starts blubbering. It's like, what's going on with this guy, you know? But then he says, man, I'm your father's relative. I'm the son of Rebecca. So she's like, whoa. Uh, verse 13, so she runs and tells her father about it. Verse 13, then it came to pass... When Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. And again, same kind of kissing, not, nothing weird. And brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now, if you will recall, when Rebekah went, left Haran to go to Canaan to be married to Isaac, remember Abraham sent his servant and had all kinds of gifts, and met Laban and Laban's and the whole family, and and gave gifts to the family. And then it says back then in that chapter that he described Abraham's wealth to the family. Man, Abraham, he's very wealthy. He's got you know. And so here's this con artist Laban, and it's like, oh, my wealthy nephew's here. And uh, so he runs out to meet him and goes, oh, you're by yourself. <laughs> you're by yourself. You don't have any gifts. You don't have any money. It's just him. But but hey. He's family, and sooner or later, he's going to have an inheritance. So, hey, welcome, my nephew. Come on in, you know. Um, now, Jacob's a con artist, but as we see here, he's not lazy. 
He's a hard worker. And we'll see that as we go through more of these chapters regarding Jacob. He's a, he's a hard worker. And he's probably doing some kind of work. Now, my guess is he's probably offering to help Rachel with the sheep. You know, I'll, I'll help her with it because, he, you know, he's, he's in love with her. And he does it for a month for nothing. He's just basically room and board. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. What does that mean, Leah's eyes were delicate? Or some of your translations may say weak. Her eyes are weak or delicate. It may have been that her eyes were a lighter colored, like maybe they were blue or or a light hazel or whatever. Um, She probably didn't have bad vision. But her eyes, uh, you know, some commentators say that instead of being a sight for sore eyes, seeing her would make one's eyes sore. You know, she just wasn't that attractive in that culture, whatever it was, compared to Rachel. Because it says here, but Rachel was of beautiful form and appearance. Let me translate that for you. She was a knockout. (laughs) She was like, whoa, (laughs) amazing. And, you know, Lapin's not dumb. He probably knows that Jacob loves Rachel. He's probably putting putting two to two together. And so he says, don't work for free. Tell me, what are your wages? Verse 18. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, hey, it's better than I give her to you or give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. What's Jacob doing here? He's negotiating a dowry. Or it also, could also be known as the bride pie, price. Excuse me. What it is, it's, it's to prove that he was financially able to take care of his daughter. You know, it, it's like uh, to prove I'm going to give you this, uh, this amount of money or this whatever it is. In this case, he, he, he gave uh, a work for you for seven years. It's sort of a prearranged alimony kind of like a prenuptial agreement, you know. It's like insurance. If I flake out or die or divorce, your daughter's going to have something to live off of. Um, and what? so then the, the father was supposed to receive this, and then at the appropriate time, he would actually give it back to the daughter. Well, we know later on, Laban had no intentions of giving it back to his daughter. He kept all of it. And so Jacob, he comes, he's got no wealth. He's got, he's got an inheritance coming at some point, but right now he has no wealth. He has nothing with him. All that he can offer is his future wages. Now, some commentators say that what he offered, seven years' wages, was an extraordinarily high bride price. And if that was true, then then you, you look, listen to Laban's response. It's like, well, you know, better I give her to you than one of the local yokels. You know, it's in other words, uh, okay, you can have the family discount. You know, because a, a con when you're doing bargaining, you don't want them to think that they're getting a good deal. It's like, oh yeah, okay, all right. Actually, you want them to think they're getting a good deal. So he's like, well, okay, better you marry him than anybody else. Verse twenty. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. And all the women here went, oh, isn't that lovely? It is. You know, he's in love. He's in love. And so seven years of hard working was like nothing because he loved Rachel so much. You know, there's a few spiritual lessons that we can learn out of this. First of all, love is patient. It'll wait. Uh, there's a few single women here, young, some younger ones, some not so young. But, you know, if a guy tells you that he loves you, everybody, all women want to hear that, right? Some guy loves you. 
but he insists in sleeping with you before marriage. Does he really love you? I would question that because it's probably not love because, see, love will wait where lust won't wait. And so just a word of, of wisdom to you women, younger women, single women. So love is patient. Second thing is love endures all things. I mean, Jacob endured seven long, hard years because he loved Rachel. He didn't give up and walk away because he loved Rachel more than what he was going through. And love is, is a very good motivator. Love uh, can help us, well, actually love avoids burnout in ministry if you're, if you're doing it for love. And, and actually the Christian life in general. Listen to what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Man, love, it motivates you know, for ministry. Now, I'm not talking about love of people. Some people go, you know what, I, 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 I'm in the ministry because I love people. Well, guess what? You're probably going to get burned out at some point. Why? Because people are going to let you down. People are, people are going to do, they're going to move to Anchorage. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're they're going to let you down. They're, they're going to move away, you know. <laughs> no, Lord bless you guys. <laughs> I love them. I'm praying God's blessing for them. Um, but, but seriously, if, if people is your focus, you go, well, I love people. Guess what? Eventually, sooner or later, they're going to disappoint you. But the Lord will never disappoint you. So for ministry, it focuses the Lord. But even as a Christian life, you know, we go through afflictions. We go through trials and hardships. But if you go, you know what? One day I'm going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Man, all this stuff is just a light affliction because eternity is before me. So for Jacob, seven years passed by, but they seemed like days to him. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. So in that culture, the wedding was consummated right away, but they had a feast that would last about a week. And so Laban invites many witnesses, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean guests, to the wedding. You see, he's, the wheels are turning, he's scheming. If he had a lot of people there, he's got a lot of witnesses. Verse 23. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah and his daughter Leah as a maid. You might go, man, how is that possible? I mean, you know, in the morning he wakes up and there's, there's Leah. I mean, how is that possible that he would not know? It just doesn't make sense, right? Well, there's two words, veils and alcohol, okay? Veils and alcohol. First of all, veils. In that culture, the women were heavily veiled. So, you, you, you know, I mean, you probably, maybe you only saw eyes. I don't, I don't know, but they were heavily veiled. Secondly, he's putting on this feast, and Laban's a smart guy. He's shrewd, and so, hey, hey let's get him a little bit happy, you know. He won't, you know, eventually he's not going to even realize, you know, he'll be so stupefied. And so, so veils and alcohol, that's, that's how it's possible. Verse 25, so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Man, the Bible is good at understating things. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. What, can you imagine? What did Leah say? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> I mean, like, wow. 
And he, so then he finds Laban. And he says, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Now here's an important principle. Paul says it in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You know, if you reap anger, I mean, excuse me, if you sow anger, you're going to reap anger. If you sow ugliness, you'll reap ugliness. If you sow deception, you're going to reap deception. And it doesn't, it's not just evil people, wicked people, Christians too. We reap what we sow. You know, you can be forgiven. Maybe you've sown something bad, some sin or some, just something terrible. You can be forgiven if you repent, but God may still allow you to reap the consequences of what you've sowed. A perfect example is King David. King David, remember, he reaped, or excuse me, he sowed sexual sin. He had an affair with Bathsheba, an adulterous affair. And then he murdered Uriah to cover it up. And then eventually he repented of his sin. And, and the prophet said, hey, you are forgiven. The Lord has forgiven. But he says, but because you did this, the sword is never going to depart your house. And we see it later on in the life of, of, of his sons. One of his sons would rape one of his half-sisters. And her brother would later murder the rapist half-brother. The sword never departed. There was sexual sin and, and violence in his family. There was a consequence of what he sowed. Now, David was forgiven, but there was a consequence. You know, the funny thing about this, we never read of Jacob confessing his deception, but he's sure quick to accuse Laban of it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? You know, when it comes to sin committed by others against you and me, man, we want justice, right? If somebody's done us wrong, we want justice. We demand justice. But when, we, when it comes to the sins that we commit against others, we don't cry for justice, man. We cry for mercy. We want mercy. But if somebody does it against us, we want justice. But if we do it, we cry for mercy. And Jesus later on in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 12 of Matthew said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Man, so goodness, so righteousness, so love, so kindness, you'll reap the same. Now, if the irony of accusing Laban of deception is lost on Jacob at this point, like, why did you deceive me? Laban's response is going to make it clear. Verse 26, and Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Boom. Can you imagine the, the bells go off? The firstborn. Laban, uh, you know, Jacob here was the younger and he had deceived his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Now, maybe the, the circumstances were a little bit different, but, but the result, how, how is it any different than what he's accusing Laban of what Laban just did? The funny thing is Laban knew what he was doing. And if that was the custom, why didn't he tell Jacob, you know, before he married? Well, because he was scheming. You know, any of you guys remember Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes? He was an old guy. At the end of the show, he would have this little two-minute little spiel, and he had this whiny voice, and he always asked questions. 
at the end of the thing, you know. And I could just like put on my Andy Rooney hat and it's like, why didn't Leah say anything to Jacob beforehand? You know, why didn't and why didn't Rachel say anything to Jacob beforehand? But think about it. Why didn't they? Why didn't Leah say something? And you might say, well, poor Leah, you know, she was under the leadership of her dad. Maybe she, you know, her dad was a really tough guy and so she just obeyed her dad and stuff. You know, she could have slipped a note. She could she could have somehow gave an inkling, hey, I'm not who you think I am, you know? But she didn't. She was part of the deception. Where was Rachel? Think about it. Rachel was part of the deception too. In some at some level, they both were guilty of deception. Why why is all this going on? Well, the answer is because deception runs runs deep in that family. Laban's a deceiver. Leah to some extent's a deceiver too, as is Rachel. Laban's sister Rebecca, Jacob's mother is a deceiver and Jacob himself. It's just it's just runs deep in that family. You know, children learn what they live, not what you teach them. You might teach them all the good things, but how you live, they're going to model that, how you live, not what you teach. And so deceivers, they don't like to be deceived. Con men don't like to be conned. And here, Jacob has met his match in Laban, the ultimate con artist. Verse 27. So, basically Laban responds. He says, fulfill her week, which is Leah's week, and we will give you this one also for the service which which you will serve me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. This is the wedding week they're talking about. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also, and Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Now here's polygamy in the Bible. Well, I want to tell you something. The Bible doesn't condone what's happening here. The Bible is just reporting it. The Bible's not condoning polygamy. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 5, they were questioning him about divorce, and he says this, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's design. God's design is one male and one female, a man and his wife. It's not like two men and three, you know, one wife and two wives. or You know, it, it's one man, one wife, and the two shall become one. Now, you know, in our nation and in other countries, um, the tradition, the, the, the definition of marriage has, has, has basically been changed to where, where now it's, it's basically anyone, as long as two people love each other. It doesn't matter if it's a male, female, or whatever. Um, as long as they are in love with each other and are committed to each other. And you know that? A lot of people have said, you know, once you take away the basic definition of marriage, that's a slippery slope. And pretty soon anything, anything goes. And I was just reading the other day that in, I don't, I don't know what country it was, it might have been France, but there's, uh, you know, it's legal that homosexual marriage is legal there. And now there's two, excuse me, three homosexual men that want to be married together. And people are like, oh, I can't believe it. Well, why not? I mean, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with it, but I'm just saying if, if your definition is as long as they're married, as long as they're committed to each other, why, why not? You see, once you destroy that, that one man, one woman, anything can go. And pretty soon we're going to see all kinds of arrangements that are going to be marriages. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You know, there's a spiritual aspect to this. 
you and I were the bride of Christ. And a word of warning to us as Christians is don't enter into a spiritually polygamous relationship because we're married to Christ. Don't be married to anything or anyone else. Jacob loved Rachel, but in the King James Version, says that he hated Leah, but it basically I think he just loved Leah less. But he really loved Rachel, but he didn't love them both equally. Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For you either will hate the one and love the other, or else you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And we see this in Jacob loved one, but he didn't love the other. Now Leah wanted the love of Jacob, but she didn't get it. But God blessed her with children. Rachel had the love of Jacob, and she wanted children, but she didn't have any. Interesting. Verse 32. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Isn't it sad when you start reading about Leah? You know, it's like, I've got a baby now. A baby's going to change things. He's going to love me now. I've given him a baby. How sad that is, because unfortunately, that's not going to change anything for them. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And guess what? Things didn't change between her and Jacob. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi or Levi. But finally, now, three sons, my three sons. But sadly, this wasn't going to make a difference either. Verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. It seems like, you know, she's naming these after the, all this thing, this hope that her husband's, you know, eventually going to love her like she wants him to. Uh, and then finally, after the third son, she has another fourth son, and she says, you know what, I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm going to name him Judah. And you know, the interesting thing is, Leah was deemed unattractive. The Bible even tells us that. And she was neglected by Jacob. But guess what? God didn't neglect her. Levi, her son, would be the father of Levitical priesthood. Judah, her other son, of course, King David would descend from her, and eventually Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would descend from her, the unloved woman. We're going to do a little bit of chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. It says that Rachel envied Leah. I like what Matthew Henry says. He says, Envy is grieving at the good of another than which no sin is more offensive to God nor more injurious to our neighbor and ourselves. Man, envy will destroy you. It'll destroy your relationships. God hates it when we are envious of other people and envy is grieving at the good of another. Man, I, I, man, why did they get all the breaks? Why do they get the nice house? Why, why do they get a house in wherever you're, you know, why, why them and not me, you know? And, and we can get envious and it's no good. Well, Rachel envied Leah. Verse 2. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. He said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? The womb, excuse me, withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Now it was obvious that the lack of having children, it wasn't Jacob's problem, okay? He's not having any problems with Leah. So Rachel's making a demand of Jacob that Jacob can't meet 
only God can meet. And I think there's a lesson in here. You know, sometimes we spouses, we look to our other spouse to meet something that they can't possibly meet. We, we have all these expectations that they can't possibly meet. Only God can meet. We, have, we got the focus wrong. Well, sadly, Rachel, she will in fact die when she gives birth to her second and her last child years later. And she'll be buried on the journey back to Canaan. And what's really interesting, if you follow the story all the way down to Genesis 49, Leah, the unloved one, the neglected one, she's going to end up living a long time and she'll eventually die and be buried. And in Genesis 49, before Jacob dies, he instructs his sons to bury him with Leah, not Rachel. Something I think that's interesting. Verse 3, so she said, so Rachel Give me sons or I die. And, and Jacob's like, well, you know, I'm in, not in the place of God. Verse 3, so she said, here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her and she will, be a chi- she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. And then she gave him Bilhah, her maid as a wife, not married, but doing, you know. And Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Here's another example. This is not, God's not condoning this. This is a surrogate mother situation, similar to, very, actually, it's the same as Sarah and Hagar with Abraham. It was culturally accepted in that day, and the Bible doesn't approve it, but it's only reporting it. Verse 7. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. What a way to name your children. Man, I've, I'm fighting with my sister, and this is the I'm going to name my child after that. Can you just sense the tension between the two sisters in this marriage? Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. So eventually, or evidently, I should say, Leah went from being, you know, I'm just going to praise the Lord. Now it's like she's getting caught up in the competition. Oh, I can't. Okay, well, I'm going to do the same thing with my maid, you know. And uh, she's no longer just praising the Lord. She's caught up in that envy and that competition. Verse 14, now Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. What are mandrakes? That's interesting. They were known as love apples. That's what they were called, love apples. Apparently, eating them had a dizzying and a narcotic effect. And uh, they were considered an aphrodisiac. And uh, the superstition behind it was that if you ate it, it would cause fertility. So Rachel, she's obviously, as we'll see later, she's very superstitious. And and God's got to do a work in her life as well. And and so she sees Reuben with these love apples. And she's like, maybe this will work. So she's trying to get them from Leah. Verse 15, but she said to her, this is Leah responding. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So they made a deal, right? So when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. You know, Jacob, one thing you got to hand it to him, he's a pretty good sport. 
you know. Um, we never read of him complaining. He's just like, okay, I guess. Verse 17. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. And Dinah worked on the railroad, but no. Um, why is this daughter mentioned? Because typically the daughters weren't mentioned. Well, she's going to figure prominently into a story later on when she's a young woman. So that's why she's, we're introduced to her here. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. We're going to stop right there and continue this not next week, but the week after, because next week we're going to have a dedication uh, service. But if you look at the, the stuff in this family, the stuff that we're reading about, again, the Bible's reporting it. There's deception, polygamy, envy, rivalry, surrogate parenting. You know, the Bible doesn't hide these things. And when you look at that family, you go, man, I thought my family was bad. These guys are pretty messed up, all the stuff that goes on. But yet... God has a plan and a purpose for all of them. By God's grace, the nation of Israel is going to descend from them, uh, will, will come from them, and eventually the Messiah is going to descend from them. You know, maybe you're here today, and maybe you're reaping some consequences, some painful consequences for some foolish sowing that you did years before. Recently, maybe your years past. And uh, good news, and God can forgive you. He will forgive you if you turn to him and confess it. You may still have to endure the consequences, but God can take those ugly consequences and he can turn them around into something beautiful if you'll just turn to him. So that's an encouragement for those. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, I, it describes my life, man. But you know, reaping and sowing is not just a negative concept. Like if you sow bad, you're going to reap bad. But also if you sow good, you'll reap good, right? It could be positive. If you sow repentance, you'll reap forgiveness. If we sow righteousness, we'll reap holiness. If we sow kindness to others, man, we're going to reap mercy. And so I just want to encourage you today. We reap what we sow. And so even as Christians, it, can be a, it is a warning to us, but it can also be an encouragement to us. Think about what you're doing. Think about it because look at the long-term or maybe even short-term consequences, ramifications of that. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that, uh, Lord, I'm always encouraged when I read of dysfunction and I read of people's failures and and, uh, the things that they do that are just like, you just shake your head, Lord, but it, it encourages me because, Lord, I am so much like them. And Lord, to know that, uh, Lord, you still blessed Jacob. You had a plan, you had a purpose, and by your grace, Lord, you you brought him into a different place and transformed him and gave him a new name. And Lord, we here today, or some of us, we are reaping uh, consequences. Lord, we, we've sown to the wind and maybe we're re- reaping the whirlwind now. And Lord, I, I thank you that you forgive us and cleanse us. 
Lord, I, I pray, Lord God, that we would just look to you in the midst of this and that, Lord, we would allow those, whatever it is that, that we're going through, to, to allow you to use it to change us, to refine us, to be more like you. And, Father, for us to be mindful that, Lord, if we want to receive grace from others, Lord, that we would, in like, be sowing graciousness to others. Lord, that we would treat people better than they deserve. Lord, that we would love people and be gentle and kind and, and so uh, just mercy, or, yeah, so mercy that we might reap mercy for ourselves as well. And so, Lord, I thank you for the reminder today. Lord, I pray your blessing on each and every person here, and uh, may you just bless them as they go through this week now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.